If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John 12 tonight. We read this um, uh, part of this uh, John 12 last week, but it was kind of in consort with the story that we were reading um, from John 11, kind of the continuation. Um, so we're going to read and study, though, verses 1 through 8 in a little different light than we did last time. Last week we focused on Judas. This week we're going to focus on really the main cast, the main characters, the main, um, the main uh, uh, people that uh, the, the story um, focuses on. So um, what I want to do up front, though, we're about halfway. We really we are at the halfway point, not just in terms of numbers and, and, and pages. Um, we're about halfway through the, the Gospel of John, really in terms of the thematic the themes that he's following, the way he kind of crafts the story, the way he tells the story. It, you're probably familiar that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke pretty much tell the same story with a little bit of a variation here and there. But overall, you can, uh, you can you know, find one of those synoptic comparisons and you can lay out Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and pretty much they kind of follow the same order. John takes a completely different route. Uh, obviously, the same events he covers, some events he highlights over the others that the synoptics do. But John really kind of crafts his narrative in a very personal, a very kind of uh, on the boots on the ground perspective. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of over, um, kind of over the landscape, kind of observing the high spots, the kind of the you know the, the, the in terms of like months to months. John's story takes place just across a few months or a few weeks, really. Um, so he kind of is more focused, more narrowed, really uh, kind of begins the story with Jesus' ministry in Judea. So, um, of course, I wanted to do a little bit of a recap this week because I think it really will help us get ready for the last half of John. And it's a really perfect time of year to be getting to this part of John. Easter is just a few weeks away, and we're just a few, um, obviously, a few pages away from the heart of the Easter story. So it's going to be really awesome, really fun, and uh, really inspiring to study this text around this time of year. The Lord works that stuff out for us pretty, uh, uh, pretty incredibly. But I want, to do, I want to do sort of a recap, um, and I think it, it'll kind of help frame what we're about to get into um, over the next uh, couple of weeks, couple of months, and also tonight. So uh, if you'll remember back, we started in John 1. Jesus is introduced with a pretty, um, in a pretty amazing fashion. John says, hey, I want to tell you all about this guy that I started following um, down by the river of Jordan when I was at one time a follower of John the Baptist. I was introduced to Jesus. And he kind of backs up to the beginning of time, and he says, the word of God that we've read in the Old Testament, the word of God that we heard from Mount Sinai, the word of God proclaimed through the law and the prophets, the word of God, the heart of God, the essence of God has become flesh. It's, I know it's unexplainable. It's just way above our minds and above our ability to comprehend. But the word of God has become flesh, and his name is is Jesus. And Jesus stepped onto the pages of history, and, and the way John really described him, not just as God's word, but he described him as God's favor. God's, the favor of God that the ancients chased after, the grace of God that the ancients wanted so badly to possess and to have and to know that they were in good standing with God. John says Jesus is full of grace, full of truth, and grace upon grace he has given us and, and revealed himself to us, the heart of God, the, 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 the true nature of God has been revealed to us exclusively through Jesus. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine? John is writing this around 90 AD. He wrote his much later than the other three. John's, you know, in his 
near 100 years old. He's an elder at the church of Ephesus. He's at the end of his life. And they, the, the history tradition tells us that his contemporaries, of course the Spirit of God, began to move him to write down his memories because he had been preaching and telling stories for years and years. And they're like, hey, John, you should write this stuff down because you're not going to be with us forever. Uh, we want you to write this down. We want to be able to preserve this and pass this on to, to generations. And, of course, God would have it, uh, have it so that we, re- we receive the, the, the gospel according to John. But can you imagine when, when, when they said, hey, John, I want you to write this down that John would, would begin his gospel with such lofty language that he says, you know what, I know that I'm a nobody in the middle of nowhere writing about a Jewish carpenter that was dead and that, that died and was buried, and some say he rose again, but this little movement, this little knockoff of Judaism, can you imagine what people thought when John wrote down on paper that Jesus is God's word made flesh, Jesus is the exclusive revelation of God? I mean, of all the gods that the ancients worshipped, the gods of the Romans and the Greeks and of the, the Middle Eastern and, and religions, John had the audacity to say that Jesus Christ, the son of a Jewish carpenter, was the true and only revelation of God. I mean, the world today laughs at that. Can you imagine what they thought of him when he wrote that? 2,000 years later, John's gospel is probably one of the most recognized pieces of literature on the planet. More people can, can tell you what John 3.16 is than probably any other verse of any, or any other line of any other book that's ever been written, secular or religious. So it's incredible to think about that. I like to think about that. I like to put that in perspective because it's just really amazing because I don't know if John knew what he was writing. I, I, obviously, he knew. He believed it. I don't know if John knew just how much it would change the world, but truly it did. John introduced us to Jesus as the Lamb of God, that Jesus was going to do for us what the Old Testament lambs did for Israel, but in a bigger, more fundamental way than we could ever imagine. He was going to wash away our sins. Now, that's a pretty incredible way to start out a story. Hey, here is the Word of God, the favorite of God, the Lamb of God in a body. His name is Jesus. Let's see where he takes us. And then he took us to John 2, and John 2 really kind of gets the ball rolling in, in, in a pretty big way. Jesus shows up at a party, and he turns water into wine, and he essentially says, hey, y'all have been drinking out of, a, out of a well that's pretty tasteless and pretty fruitless. I've come to give you the real stuff. I've come to give you the true vine from God. I've come to connect you to God in ways that your religion has never imagined and has never been able to. And to the Jews, that was pretty offensive. Then he went to the temple and he said, y'all can tear this temple down, but I'll build it back in three days. As he was saying to them, I'm building a new platform. We're drinking out of a new well. We're getting connected to a new vine. I am a new platform. The old is passing away. Something new is here. And then we went into John 3, and Jesus sat down with one of the elders of Israel, and he had that famous conversation where Nicodemus should have known what it meant to be a follower of God and how to get into God's kingdom, but he didn't know because Judaism didn't give people that kind of, a, that kind of assurance. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, as clear as he would say to anybody, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be changed from the inside. This is something God's going to do internally. This is something that God's going to do for people personally. Then Jesus went to Samaria, of all places, which was not the, the most friendly to the Jewish people, right? He went to Samaria. He started a revival in Samaria, which got a lot of people's heads turning. And then he went um, and, and received word that a Sadducee wanted to meet with him, a Sadducee that didn't believe in the miraculous, a Sadducee that didn't believe that God was personal. A Sadducee was so desperate for his son to be healed, he came to Jesus living as if God could change his fate or his son's fate and he did 
Then we went to John 5, and Jesus went to a religious festival at the Pool of Bethesda, a place where people, where religion was funneling people down an alley where nobody actually got any help. And Jesus had this challenge, had this confrontation with the religious leaders who had these views that were not putting people at the, at, at, at the priority. They had these views that made religious traditions more important than helping people. And Jesus said, listen, I'm not here to make sure your views are held on to. I'm here to make sure the yous in your midst are helped. And then from there, of course, Jesus has got a big following. He feeds 5,000 men plus their wives plus their children plus many more but then all of a sudden he turns the movement on a dime and as he has this massive 20,000 plus following, he begins to define discipleship in a way that clears the herd and there only are 12 left at the end of that chapter. So all of a sudden John's been building up, building up, building up. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus and now nobody wants to get near Jesus. So then Jesus, not really the most popular man in town anymore, waltzes into Jerusalem for another religious festival. He walks into Jerusalem and he's kind of sneaking around and the religious leaders are wondering why he's not as popular as he was. And then he crashes the ceremony. He stands up as they're drawing water out of the well of Siloam and he says, y'all, y'all, I know y'all think that that well is a symbol of the source of life of your religion, but I say unto you, if you want to drink from the fountain of God, you should come to me because I am the only source of life. And they thought, who are you, Jesus, to say that about yourself? Jesus departed, but the next morning, he came back as they were about to stone a woman at daybreak. Jesus interceded for this woman. He told the religious leaders to lay down their rocks because they were just as guilty as her. And he had come to do for them what their religion couldn't do, which was forgive and save. Jesus in John 8 really spars with the religious leaders and he really gets to a point of, 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 of tension where it doesn't seem like they're, they're, they're going to be able to reconcile their differences. Even though they believed in the same God and read the same Bible, they disagreed on how it fundamentally was to be applied. From there, another festival, another big religious uh, ceremony goes on, and Jesus shows up and he heals a blind man, a blind man who was, was just in the city square not getting any help from the Jewish leaders or the Jewish officials. He heals this blind man because it was on the Sabbath day, because it was during a holiday. The, the religious leaders used this to, to pin Jesus as, as, as you know, against God, as against the law, as against their faith. And Jesus and the blind man, but more importantly, Jesus is excommunicated from the faith, from the temple, from the religious scene, from the religious headquarters. He is given a, 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 a note. He is, his hall pass is taken away. His, his, his authority as a rabbi is taken away. He's put on a watch list because if he shows up again, he could be arrested. He could even be killed. And then in John 10, Jesus, which is just a continuation of John 9, in John 10, Jesus says, before I leave y'all, because I know you want to kill me. And, and listen, you're going to get, you're, we're going to get there. He really draws a line. He says, listen, all these religious leaders that are throwing rocks at me, they're calling me names. They're hirelings. They don't care about you. I am the one who's come from God to be a good shepherd, to bring God's sheep into his fold. And then he says something so incredible. He says, you try to take my life. Nobody takes it, but I'm actually going to lay it down. I'm going to take it back. And they try to kill him, they try to stone him, they try to riot against him, but he says, before I leave y'all, one more thing, I and my father are one. And he knows that burns them up because he's been building toward this moment of declaring to them, he isn't just from God, he isn't just giving his opinion on Judaism, he's rewriting the book, right? He's not just here to do, 
He's not just here to do Judaism 2.0. He's here to do something brand spanking new. He says to them, you've got it all wrong. Yes, the word is still my word. It's still God's word. But you've been reading it as if there's a period. It's a comma. And I've come to put the period on the story. He claims equality with God. He says, if you want to get to God, you've got to come through me only. And then John 11 is both way more intense and also more personal at the same time. And it really is the turning point in the story. Jesus leaves Jerusalem as, and has said what he's needed to say. He isn't allowed back in because he's accused of blasphemy and he's put on the Jewish most wanted list. And he retreats to the wilderness. And if you read the end of John 10, it's like, well, you know, what's going to happen? Jesus has nobody that really wants to be around him anymore. He's dangerous to be around. His own followers don't really want to be around him. And then they get a letter, they get a message that his good friend Lazarus is sick and he's dying, actually. But Jesus doesn't budge. And his followers, they all say, well, of course we can't go back into town. They'll kill us if we go back. They'll kill us if we cross the, 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 the border. We can't go back into Judea. It wasn't like that he didn't care, or maybe, maybe people thought, well, is he just bummed out? I mean, yeah, I know it's dangerous, but Jesus is Jesus, right? He could just walk in. He could just speak the word. I mean, is he just discouraged? Is he just overwhelmed because all this kind of blew up in his face, but he kind of did it intentionally. He kind of caused it, caused it on himself. I mean, what's going on? But really, he was planning something big. And if you think back from John 7 to John 10, he really burns a lot of bridges. He burns all of his bridges in Jerusalem. And while that doesn't take away from the miracles he did before, it just kind of made his following, which was really thin, it made his following just kind of, you know, wondering, you know, what are his motives? Like, what are we really doing? I mean, before it seemed like we were destined for greatness, and now it's just kind of dwindled to this. And, I mean, Jesus, you did so many miracles, and are are you just going to flame out and disappear? Because most would-be messiahs who thought they were of God and claimed to be of God, eventually they just would disappear into the wilderness. And most believed that Jesus would not be seen again after John 10. But then John 11 shows up, and everybody gets back on the train. It's as if Jesus was in control of this entire movement the whole time. He leverages his good friend's fate to display and demonstrate his true power as Messiah. And John 11 crescendos in an undeniable resurrection where a man that had been buried had been left for dead for four days, was brought back to life, and nobody could refute, no one could argue against the power of Jesus. It was clear he was from God. He might even be God. In John 11, verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, many of the Jews saw this and believed. Now, when, I, when it says many, it means all the people that unfollowed. I mean, you raise a man from the dead. I don't care what you say. You can offend me every day of the week. I'm not leaving you, right? I mean, unless you tell me to go, I'm going to stay around, right? You can say, you can tell me, you can tell me, you can ask for my money. You can, ask, you can tell me things I don't want to hear. You can disagree with me politically. But if you raise a man from the dead in front of me and I see it, sign me up, right? I mean, why would you not? So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and everybody and their brother and their sister, people that had never had anything to do with Jesus, that talked bad about Jesus, that were, that were against Jesus, everybody was back on board except the Jewish leaders. And they are desperate. 
I mean, they had this meeting in John 11 we looked at last week. They had this meeting, and they're hitting the panic button. It's over for us, right? I mean, he's got a following, and they're about to roll into town, and people are whispering. They're planning a big parade. He's going to roll into town on Passover week. It's going to be as if the new Moses is in town, but not just this this is bigger than Moses. This is God himself. He's going to overthrow Jerusalem. He's going to overthrow Rome. This is our moment. We've all been waiting for it, and the Jewish leaders are scared to death because because they, they're about to lose their power and their authority. And that's why the Jewish council comes together so concerned, because they even say, this is unstoppable. The whole world has gone after him. They heard these rumors that Jesus was coming back to town. He wasn't afraid this time. He had an entourage. But they wondered, what are his intentions? What were their intentions? Because even if Jesus wasn't Causing, calling for insurrection, his following would bring the pitchforks and torches, right? Because they had the guy on their side. The Jewish leaders were bracing for the worst, planning and plotting a way to circumvent anything that might threaten their security and control. And they begin to send out bribes. They begin to send out posters and messages. If you know where Jesus is going to be and you're willing to sell out, we will pay you whatever you want. Just tell us where he's going to be because we're desperate. With all those dynamics, John's story enters the second act. A move a more suspenseful in some ways, but also very more personal in a lot of ways. So after John 11, when the Jewish elders plot and scheme, Jesus is met with the biggest crowd since he thinned the herd back in John 6. And everyone begins to go in wild with expectations and begins planning a major parade, a way to signify that Jesus is Messiah. They read the Old Testament. The Messiah was going to roll into town on a donkey, so they get two donkeys because they want to make sure they are sending the message, this is the Messiah, this is David's son, this is our king. But then Jesus does this peculiar thing. He says, guys, 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 I know this is weird. And, you know, if you're, if you're a movie star, if you're a celebrity, you can do this kind of stuff. So they kind of thought it, they didn't think it was that odd. But in retrospect, it's really odd. Jesus says, hey, y'all, I need a day off. And, you know, if a, if a guy that just raised the, somebody from the dead says, hey, I need a day off, you, you ask him, hey, where do you want to go, right? You want us to carry you? You want us to get you some grapes and some, you know, uh, bring you some food on a platter? I mean, what can we do for you, Jesus? He says, no, 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 y'all. I just need a little bit of time by myself. A couple of my friends, Judas, I want you to come with me. A few of y'all go plan the parade. But me and Judas... Me and Judas and a few others, we're going to go and spend some time with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Because they've been through a lot lately, and I'm about to take over the world. I mean, so hey, I need a little bit of a break. And they're like, of course you do, Jesus. You can do anything you want to do. We're going to go plan the parade. You go have a nice day off with your friends. So they have some time to prep. He, a few of his disciples... Hundreds of them start coordinating with the townsfolk for this spectacular parade. We'll get to that next week. Meanwhile, Jesus returns to Bethany, spends some time with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. John 12, verse number 1 through 8. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who has been dead, whom he raised from the dead, there they made him a supper, and Martha served. Lazarus was one of those that sat at the table with him. And the Greek there literally is reclined at the table, leaned on him, not literally laying on him, but the idea there is very, uh, very close fellowship, you know, really good friends hanging out together. Verse 3, Then Mary took a pound of very costly uh, oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. 
very temple language there. I just want to interject there. Very tabernacle language. The house was filled with the aroma, the smell of sacrifice. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who was invited to come to this, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Of course, Judas, you're the one who runs the charity, right? Of course you know about the people that are in need. So noble of you to ask. But John says, John's an old guy, but he remembered this. He did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He had the money bag, and he used to take from it what, what he used to take what was put in. But, John, but Jesus said, let her alone, for she has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will have with you always, but me you do not have always. Judas, I know you're just in this for yourself, and I know you're really just here because you want to see what my next move is going to be because you hope you're going to be the one on the chariot with me because you're in this for whatever you can get out of it. Just to let you know, I'm not here for that. But more on that next time. This text is so unique, and it's so much bigger than these eight verses. And, and I think, really, because it's so small and because it's so kind of different than the rest of the story, this text gets overlooked. But I, I want to say this, and I know I say this kind of a lot about a lot of scriptures, but I really mean this this time. But, and actually, I, I never said this about any other scripture, so I'm not just talking out of my talking nonsense. This text might be the secret most, secret because we overlook it, because we just read past it, this text might be the secret most important passage for a Christian to study. Big, that's a big statement to make, I know. But this, in a, in a book where every chapter is important, in a book where every chapter could change your life as a Christian, where every chapter should, be a, should have a memory verse you, remember, you, you take to heart, these eight verses might be the secret most important, the most overlooked scriptures that every Christian needs to study over and over and over again. It's not flashy, it's not filled with spectacle, it's not bursting forth with miracles which is why we just get past it, because John's all about energy, 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 and then this chapter, and we're like, these few verses is like, well, that's kind of weird. Let's move on to the parade, right? But it's deeply personal. It's deeply personal in a book full of personal accounts. But I'm so glad this is, this is in John, and I think John, who crafted this narrative in such a way, he placed it at the heart of the story. I think maybe John wanted to make sure that if you opened his book up halfway, you would look at this scripture dead in the eyes. It might not lead to the ubiquitous memory verses like John 3.16 or John 8.36, you know, the, uh, God so loved the world or the truth will set you free. It may not feature an amazing sermon from Jesus with passion and life like John 6 or John 8 or John 10. It, it may not feature a miracle or a sign or a wonder where somebody is healed, the impossible is achieved, but what it is and what it does is maybe more important than any of those. Remember, why is John writing this story? so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing in Him, you would have life in His name, right? John's writing this, so every verse, every passage has a, has a very important meaning and very important purpose. So you will believe. We've seen Jesus on the megaphone. We've seen Jesus on the mountaintop with a powerful Word of God, the mighty wonders of God. But this text is so unique. This text is really a response to the Jesus we've met so far, a true worship service, really one of the only worship services in the Bible, in, in the Gospels, and one of the few examples of a church 
body, a church service, I would say. Not in, in the 11 o'clock format, but as a church that functions as a service to God. We live in a world that always wants more, don't we? We live in a world that always wants next. So we read John, and man, it's miracle after miracle after miracle, but we get spoiled, don't we? I mean, it's like, what's going to happen next chapter? Oh, he's hanging out at Bethany, and somebody's, make, somebody's cooking, somebody's hanging out at the table, and somebody's washing his feet. I mean, what's exciting about that? Can we move on to the party, right? We live in a world that doesn't really want to slow down and think about what has happened. We want to think about what can happen, right? Now, we're all spooled like that. I'm that way, right? My generation is the, is the embodiment of that kind of mentality. So, hey, it's cat, you know, pot, kettle, black. I get it. But I feel like the church is all too often showing up with this kind of attitude. Well, what's next, God? I mean, I know you've done all this stuff, but hey, we are tapping our foot waiting on something new because that's just how you are, isn't it? I feel like we just show up Sunday after Sunday, and it's like, God, if you don't do something for me this week, I'm out. I know you've done incredible things for the last however many thousand years, and for us personally, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever. But hey, God, what's next? And we kind of live with this kind of unpleasable appetite, don't we? Y'all don't, but a lot of us do, right? Sometimes it's not, what, it's not about what's next. Sometimes maybe it ought to be about, maybe most of the time, we ought to show up with this attitude Wow, this is a lot, God. I mean, God, I just want to say, you have been doing some incredible things. You've done so much. You've been so good. I mean, I'm not here because I'm expecting something else. I'm just here to say, God, you're so good. We don't do that a lot, do we? And the modern church thinks if we don't do, if we don't do the former, then we're not going to get people right. And that's a lie, and that's not right, and that's not biblical. But the churches still do it. But what about showing up and just saying, God, you're so good. I mean, even not just what you've done in my lifetime, but what you've been doing for thousands of years, God. I just want to come and stand on those promises, and I just want to say, God, I'm not here because I want something. I'm not here because I need to be convinced or I need to be awed. Or I just want to say, God, you're so good. I mean, come on. We know this. God isn't the vending machine, right? He's the king of kings, right? Y'all remember the vending machine sermon a couple weeks ago? That's my best one, wasn't it? I played one of those last night. I always lose. It was one of those things where you have to put, put the dollar in, and then you have, the little bar goes up and down, and you try to get it through the hole to win something. They're rigged. You can't win. I just do that just so I can, be, I can get up and run the church and tell, make a fool of myself. Don't play those things. They're, not, they're winner's cube. They're, they're just a rig. They, they've gotten tens of dollars from me in my lifetime. Anyway, God's not a vending machine. He is the king of kings. He's worthy of all of our praise, our adoration, and our reflections. Like looking back, saying, God, you're so good. Now, I think we really have a skewed idea of worship. And I'm not beating up on anybody but myself because I get kind of caught up in the moment. And I forget this. We think worship is about expectations and experience and entertainment. But that's not what worship is. And not, entertainment can be anything. It can be old, it can be new, it can be one style, other style. We think worship is about just kind of this experience, this entertainment. But worship is not based on what God has done lately. I mean, people say, well, you know, what, the worship meter is, what has God done here lately? And we all kind of have to try to, you know, tout like, you know, like a rooster, kind of stick our chest out and say, well, this is what God's done for me. I mean, hey, that's not what the worship meter is based on. Worship, God's, God's done enough, right? I mean, he always does more, and he's going to do more, but that's not what, what it really means to worship. Worship is not about God showing up and doing something. Worship 
is our response to what we value most. Worship has nothing to do with what God does. Worship has everything to do with our response. Key part of that definition. Our response to what we value and what we have the most faith in. See, John 12 might be a little less action-packed than the previous chapters, but I think it's Jesus' way of saying, I've done a lot, I'm going to do more, yeah? But maybe it's time to stop and reflect on what God has shown us. We ought to set our worship services apart. What ought to set our worship services apart is what we bring to them. You hear that? What makes a worship service unique and distinct and impactful is what we bring our response to what God has already done. If we leave a worship service not impressed, it's not because God didn't do something. It's not because God didn't show up. God showed up 2,000 years ago and bled out on a cross. Right? He bled out on a cross and He was buried and He rose back to life on His own power. Don't ever come to me and don't ever come at me and say, well, God just hadn't shown up. I mean, have you read the scriptures? His spirit has been moving from that point in time ever since. And if you put your faith in what he did, you receive everlasting life. You want God to show up? Put your faith in what he's already done. And respond to that with praise, with worship, with adoration. His life is available to anybody that believes. Of course, what we learn from this text, worship isn't confined to just what happens on Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship should be the lifestyle of a Christian. As in every single day, we Christians should be telling the world, living a lifestyle that is worshipful, that is pointing to God and saying, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you what he's done for me, what he's done for you. And I'm going to live my life in a way that points and makes you know that God is supreme in my life. That's what worship means and what worship is all about. Verse 2 and 3 shows us there are different styles of worship, different modes of worship. The idea isn't that each person only ever worshiped through their one style, but we can learn that there's more than one way to worship. You can underline this, and I'll show you up on the screen. Martha served, Lazarus fellowshiped, and Mary sacrificed, and all of them were worshiping in their own way. Martha was serving, Lazarus was just hanging out, Mary was pouring herself out, but all of them were worshiping God. Again, Martha was being productive for him. Lazarus spent time with him. Mary poured herself out unto him. Do you see how all this is what it means to worship? Hey, I've got a job to do. I'm going to do it for him because he is worth all the honor and all the attention. You know what? I don't got nearly nothing to do today, but hey, I don't want to spend it with you, God. And I know I might not be doing something spiritual all the time, but God, I'm doing this with you. You're with me. You're pleased with me. I'm in love with you. We're going to do what we do today for your glory, and I'm going to learn a lot about you, and hopefully you'll actually uh, teach me a few things right along the way. God, I'm going through some rough stuff right now. Or maybe I've got so much going for me, I can't even count them all. I'm going to bring what I've got, a little or a lot, I'm pouring it out to you. That shows us a lot of different angles of our lives, doesn't it? 
we've got so many opportunities to worship. We learned a few things here, and we're going to go through these quickly. Martha teaches us we can worship through work. Everyday work. She wasn't building the church. She wasn't serving the church. She wasn't cleaning or cooking for the church. She was just doing a, a job in the house, preparing what we assume to be a meal for her family and her friends. But regardless of what her job was, we all have a job. We all have a work that we can do every day. And Martha teaches us we can worship through that job. Not just mission field stuff, not just ministry stuff, but any job. Colossians 3 puts it better than I can put it. Bond servants, slaves, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, Paul's talking to literal slaves, okay? Now, you might feel like a slave at your job, but you're not that kind of slave, right? You might feel like somebody's just kind of you know, taking advantage of you and using you, but listen, you're not that kind of slave. And Paul's saying to these slaves, it's wrong that you're slaves. You shouldn't be slaves. God's going to free you one day. But listen, you are put there and you can do the best you can in that circumstances. It's not in vain. And that's really hard to swallow for someone that felt like they were unjustly a slave. But he goes on, whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord, not for me. What if we just entered our jobs tomorrow with that kind of attitude? I'm not doing this for you. I'm not doing this for anybody. I'm doing this for the Lord. Not as for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Who, who are you serving in your job? Jesus. God is sovereign. God positions. God places. God assigns us with our jobs. Every job has a purpose and significance. As a society, I think we rank and value some over the others. Maybe at your job, you're below someone. Maybe you're above someone. Maybe you're way below someone. In our world, we rank and value people based on how much they make and what good they do for society and accomplish. That's not how God sees things. There's a verse back in Exodus when Israel is planning for life in the land. God is telling Moses how to build teams to do this or that. God says this, I have given to all able men or women ability that they may make all that you've commanded or I've commanded. Whether it's paid or a volunteer role, whether you felt called or whether you feel stuck, our mentality should always be, God's given me the ability to do this job He's placed me in. How can I honor Him with this work? If we focus on this, we will be far more motivated. Now listen, in America, I think we spend so much time dreaming of about, about a better job. That's fine. Get, chase after it if you can. We dream about not having to work at all. We miss the beauty and the calling of work. Because before the fall, Genesis says the Lord God put man, took man and put him in the garden to work it. Work wasn't a curse. Work was a blessing. I'm not saying we shouldn't dream or seek better. I'm just saying we should run it all by the Lord, not assume he sees the world, the culture or society like the like like we do or like the world does. 1 Corinthians 7 says, Whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God and let him give it, let her give it their best. Wherever you are right now, that's where God is calling to you and that's where you can honor him and worship him. It's that job, it's with that work. You can worship God with your work. We also learn from Lazarus that we can worship in the still and in the quiet. When it seems boring or incidental. 
See, Lazarus was probably looking, for some down, looking forward to some downtime. He had just died, right? He deserved a day off. You got to think nothing could ever live up to the energy of that day, right? But sometimes we have these mountaintop experiences that really set impossible expectations and standards for every other experience to come. Every day's not going to be like it was when you got saved. Every day's not going to be like it was when that miracle happened, right? But we learn here that we can still worship in those moments where nothing really happens, when nothing really is going on. We can just appreciate Jesus for who he is. We can lean on him. We can fellowship with him. There are countless verses and passages that speak to this because more often than not, we find ourselves in the in-between. We find ourselves doubting, wondering if we're missing something. Social media makes it look like everybody's having the best day of their life every day, right? But we need to learn to enjoy the company of one another, count our blessings, and welcome the Lord into the still small moments of our days. It's okay to have some time where maybe nothing's going on. It's okay to be quiet and still and worship the Lord, fellowship with Him when nothing else may be happening. We remember the story of Elijah who went from mountaintop to mountaintop and then found himself in a rut on the run. He went to Mount Sinai trying to conjure up that old bliss. And then he saw some fire and he felt some wind and he heard the rocks begin to quake. But God was not in any of those things, but rather God spoke to him in a still, small voice. And Elijah, you know better than this. There is a God who can be enjoyed and experienced. We need only to lean on him. He's not always found in the spectacle. He's often and mostly found in the simple. Every day, even the mundane, can matter with Jesus, for Jesus, when you just spend it with him. Lastly, we learn from Mary we can worship through sacrifice. This is more difficult. Sometimes in life we are, we are broken, we're burdened, we're overwhelmed. Other times we're privileged, we're blessed, we're stress-free. Maybe the last thing on our minds in both situations is worship. Because when everything's falling apart, we're just hurting, right? And we don't feel like going to God because it would really just kind of take a lot of energy we don't want to put out. When things are so good, we don't even think about God, right? We're just living it up and we're having a good time. We don't consider what God might want to do or what God might be doing. Whether we have a surplus or a deficit, whatever we have is best poured out at Jesus' feet. It's hard to pour it out when you've got a lot because you want to use it for yourself. Hello? It's hard to pour it out when you've got a lot or enough because you want to use it for number one, right? And it's even more hard to pour it out when you don't got much at all because you still got to use it on you, right? You don't feel like it, and I get that. But I want to tell you a secret. Sacrifice is the quickest way, the shortest route to encountering God. When we give from our plenty or from our poverty, we are saying to God, I value more, I value you most. And this isn't just money, right? This is oil that she had, right? It's pouring ourselves out. Your sacrifice might be money, it might be tears, it might be time, it could be some testimony, it could be just getting up and going to work tomorrow because you know it's your purpose, it's your place. It could be fighting through the pain, fighting through the frustrations. The point is that when we give to God, when we sacrifice to God, when it's hard to or when it's easy to not, when it's tempting to not, when it's difficult to, this principle works no matter what we're giving. If we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we reap bountifully. If we pour ourselves out in full to God, we will receive back from God double fold. 
In today's world, there's those of us who can't afford, there's those of us who choose other things, but from the beginning of the Bible, God's people are always compelled to give. Again, whatever it might be. Sacrifice is a way, it's the way to make more room for God. A sacrifice for you might just be going to somebody and saying, listen, I want to help you. Going to somebody and saying, hey, I know you're hurting, I want to hurt with you. Maybe it's a day that you're hurting and you're broken and you're burdened and you just go to God and say, God, I don't feel like worshiping you, I don't feel like talking to you, I don't feel like studying, I don't feel like going to church, but I'm here because I believe I'm going to pour myself out and you're going to fill me back up. Sacrifice is a way of making more room. Test him, try him. If you want more of him, this is the quickest way to get it. What does it say? It was, the house was filled with the fragrance, just like the temple was when they gave. It's like what John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. You see, nothing's a waste if we dedicate it to God. Everything can be for gain if it's done, spent, given, and worship to God. Now, the contrast in this story are the words of Judas, who cites the wasteful sacrifice Mary is making. He probably thought that Martha's service and that Lazarus' time spent was also a waste. There are people that would think it would be a joke to go to the place that you work and dedicate your time to God. There are people that would think it would be a joke to think that just because you, you know, if you have nothing going on for you spectacularly in your life, that you can still find peace with God. There are people that would think what you give and what you do and how you sacrifice for the Lord, it's in vain. It's a waste. Listen, the world doesn't see the value of worship. The, worship think, the world thinks it's wasteful. They see dollars to make, better things to be doing, easier paths to take. The world complains about the dull and the difficult, but we see a God to glorify and to exalt. We see a winning team to rally behind. Even though Jesus was going to die, these three knew what he was and who he was, and they knew living for him what is unrivaled by the rest of the world. You and I have a special opportunity every day to make the most of our time to walk hand in hand with God. It's like Psalms 46 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Tomorrow, the next day, the next week, whenever, as we go to our jobs, as we go through a season where it's just kind of nothing's going on, as you go through that season of difficulty or that season of blessing, you're going to wonder, is this the time to worship? And it absolutely is. We can worship God through every day and every day through everything that we're going through. Remember, worship is our response to what God has done. We've learned from John, God's done a lot, hasn't he? And we're not even done with the book. And God's not done doing incredible things. We shouldn't be done responding with incredible praise and worship. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for this text. Lord, I really mean it. I, I don't know how you view all the scripture. I think you love it all because you inspired it and wrote it all. But God, I don't know. This passage is so special to me. God, it's just such a, 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 a small window into just the normalcy of the world where these three people who had seen and you do so much and been through so much 
they just pause to worship you. Father, I pray that we would understand what the heart of worship is all about. It's about coming to your house. It's going to work. It's going to this. It's doing that. And doing so with a response to who you are. Lord, what kind of revival might happen if we all went to work tomorrow with that song in our hearts? With the dedication, with the drive and determination to do it for you? What kind of revival might happen if we spend our days off, if we spend our time off dedicating it to you, doing the things that we want to do, but doing it with you and for you? What kind of revival might come if in the moments of difficulty, in the seasons of blessing, we went to you and came to you and poured ourselves out to you? Father, I pray that you would help us all to consider what, how we can worship you tomorrow how we can worship you this week and how we can enter this house again next time and worship you all the more. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done, for what you continue to do. We give you praise and glory for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.